What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? How you living? Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. And let me just start by throwing this at you. Whether you think so or not, as a person, as an engaged member of society, which I know all of you listening are, you're required to have some understanding of science. And yeah, that's my opinion and the opinion of scientists who work hard trying to communicate science to people who aren't specialized in these topics. But I'm pretty confident that this is also objectively true. Personal health and medical decisions you know, are an obvious example where it would be good for you to understand a little bit about science and medicine in order to make the most appropriate decision for yourself. And as we've discussed many times when it comes to something like vaccine, public health. But what about having a say in just your know, new technologies, how they're going to be applied, decisions about energy, climate change mitigation. The debate about AI is so hot right now and heating up, and it would probably behoove all of us to understand a little bit about the nuance of these technologies so that we can hold companies accountable, ask for the application of AI in areas where it actually seems like it would be a great benefit, demand regulation from our government. And as you'll hear in this episode, genetics is also a topic that is increasingly going to require our attention. Think of privacy concerns regarding the use of genetic information. Many people are already willfully supplying their DNA to private companies for ancestry tests. And the technology behind things like the ancestry tests are not just going to be used as a fun little gimmick. Sequencing technology is way more powerful than it used to be, and it's only getting better. The amount and depth of genetic information that we are now able to obtain is mind-boggling. Combine that with AI and algorithms to help sort through that data, and we're going to be posed with a lot of interesting questions that could improve the health of our societies, but also ethical questions about how these databases are constructed and the limits of the interpretations of that genetic data. The level to which we understand these types of questions and can reasonably answer them will have political and societal consequences as well. We've already seen a number of horrific crimes perpetrated by individuals who believed they understood the genetic data they were consuming and believed that it was reinforcing their very racist and abhorrent ideas and actions. There's also the question about gene editing. Genetically modified organisms, GMOs or GMs as they're sometimes called, have been around for decades and have been a controversial topic for decades. But again, the technology and our abilities to do this type of work is improving. And as a society, we are going to be faced with a lot of new questions about where this technology should be applied, safety concerns, privacy concerns. Some of these things may even touch us down to a spiritual or moral level about what is natural, what is not natural. Is it appropriate to tinker with our own biology in these ways? And this is why there's people who volunteer, scientists, researchers, who volunteer to do this type of outreach, to explain to people what are these technologies, how do they work, are the fears about them founded or unfounded. Increasingly, too, for researchers, academics, 
it's becoming a job requirement, something that grant funding is tied to. If we give you this money and you do this study, how are you going to get the results out there to a broader audience? Many institutions now include science communication efforts in the yearly evaluation. What have you done to help bring your data out into the public? What sorts of activities are you engaging in to promote what is going on here at the university? And surprisingly, or perhaps not, the scientists who are being asked to do this, encouraged to do this, often lack the training and even some basic data to back up whether what they're doing is working. The social sciences and communications research has a wealth of tools to explore how information and how communication impacts people's motivations, attitudes, beliefs, ideas. And all of these could be applied to the science communication area. And there is a small field of science communication that looks at the science of science communication. But I would argue that we need a little bit more. And after recording this episode with my two guests today, I'm pretty confident they agree. I'm joined today by Cristina Fonseca, a professional science communicator who works with the Genetics Society in London, and a professor of genetics at the University of Aberdeen, who has been on this show before to discuss his work with the amazing model organism C. elegans, Jonathan Pettit. And he is one of these researchers that is going above and beyond his academic work to do public outreach, to do science communication. And the two of them were two of several authors on two papers that were released this year that looked at attitudes and trust in science before and after the pandemic and also explored the relationship between what people know about science, their confidence in what they know about science, and then their attitudes towards controversial science topics we discussed those papers specifically and more generally talked about science communication during the pandemic, after the pandemic, why it's important to really sort of scrutinize what we're doing in terms of these activities, why getting that feedback from your audience is so important. We also talked about why it's important for researchers to get that feedback. This isn't just a one-way street. Hearing the questions that come from members of society about why they're doing the research they're doing, how they're doing the research they're doing, the ethics of the research they're doing, is really important feedback for scientists too. We also talked about the drawbacks for people, academics, who put themselves out there. Again, some of the negatives were highlighted by the pandemic. And so whether you're involved in science communication or not, or someone who just enjoys being communicated to about science, I assume that there's a fair number of you in this audience, this is an interesting conversation. And I think it's one that could help both audience and presenter better understand each other and better understand how they could work together to provide the information that everybody wants. Our world is becoming increasingly scientific. That is without a doubt. And so hopefully the audiences that need this information can help the people who are best able to provide that information build trust and find ways to effectively communicate it. And before we get to the interview, I have to say, as always, thank you for listening and for supporting the show. Please subscribe, rate, review wherever you're getting your podcasts. 
that really helps out our visibility. If you'd like to leave a comment, that would also be great. We are also on Twitter and Instagram, at 2 you. Giving us a follow and engaging with us there would be delightful. Our website right now is www.2bradforyou.wordpress.com. If you go to the website, you can find other ways to get in touch with us, an email, a voice message, and you can find ways to chip in a couple bucks to the show. All right, no more of the shameless promotion. Let's get to my conversation with Christina Fonseca and Jonathan Pettit. So I want to start by saying thank you, both of you, for... um, for taking the time to join me uh, today. Uh, I think this is a really important topic, science communication broadly, uh, but specifically studies like the two studies we're going to talk about today that you guys were uh, authors on, where we actually look at the attitudes of the audiences we're trying to reach. I think this is something that we don't do a lot of in science communication, or we could do more of. And so we're going to talk about two specific papers uh, that you guys published earlier in the year with a group of other authors, and they'll be linked in the show notes, so anyone who wants to take a look at, look at them can. And it's titled, People with More Extreme Attitudes Towards Science Have Self-Confidence in Their Understanding of Science, Even If This Is Not Justified. And the second is, Both Trust and Polarization of Trust in Relevant Sciences Have Increased Through the COVID-19 Pandemic. So they kind of build on each other, I thought. But let's just start with a short introduction uh, for, of you guys and, you know, where, you, uh, where you're working, what your sort of roles are. And maybe we can start with Christina, as she is new to the show. Jonathan has been here once before. So. Um, thank you. And thank you so much for inviting us to talk about our papers. Um, my name is Christina Fonseca. Um, I am a science communicator and I work with... Uh, genetic society do you want me to talk a little bit about the rationale behind the paper or just let's let uh let's let jonathan give a quick uh so people know his voice and then we can jump right into that my name is jonathan pettit uh i'm a professor of genetics at the university of uh, aberdeen um but i guess for the purposes of this it's more important i'm the officer for public engagement for the genetic society all right well yeah let's jump into the two papers right away and To start, you know, before we get into the details of exactly what the papers we're looking at, I wonder if you both maybe have a comment on, you know, sort of your personal motivation for writing a paper or two papers of this style. I kind of teased at the beginning there that trying to get feedback from our audiences, uh, whether our science communication is working, what are their attitudes, that to me is an important thing. So maybe you could both, uh, and whoever wants to start, just, just jump in. What's the sort of personal motivation for a type, this type of a, of a study? Um, for me, it was that I do a lot of uh, public engagement events, especially science festivals and um, different types of uh, public lectures and things like that. And it's always interesting to hear what the people, what people have to say, what the public has to ask us. But I think we have, or at least I have, a very biased opinion of um, what the public wants or needs from science communication that doesn't necessarily uh, reflect what the public wants. So it's my own personal opinion. So I think my motivation was to have actual evidence that I can back up all of my events and to be able to say, I think we need to do 
an event that is more focused on this subject because that's what the public actually wants to hear about. Um, so for me, it was just to inform my own practice. Uh, I don't know about Jonathan. Hmm. I mean, I think the, the group as a whole, uh, we, we were aware during the pandemic that there, were, there might be certain things that we could test that might have changed. You know, this is a sort of a natural laboratory. So people technical terms that we're used to as geneticists and we we're used to having to explain in great detail they should be in the news on a daily basis pcr for instance um sequencing dna sequencing those things were to to, to follow variants those things were, were, st were being reported on a daily basis during the pandemic and so the the specific survey would allow us to to address some of those things but then going lo longer term, uh, the question is, you know, it's much more, it's a much broader question, which is how should we be engaging um, with a non-specialist audience? And what would be the best way of doing that? And realistically, as scientists, we should have an evidence base to support that. I think that's the other motivation here. Yeah, so a bit of an opportunistic uh, opportunity with given the pandemic and yeah. this, this idea to, yeah. yeah, people are being inundated with all of these terms and things like this. And I think trust, which we'll get to in one of the papers, that was a big thing that also appeared during the pandemic. Um, and so, again, a chance to sort of look at some of these attitudes. Yeah. and. To speak to what you uh, mentioned, Christina, this just getting that feedback from our audiences, it's something that when I transitioned from being a scientist to science journalist, science communicator, one of the biggest tips that was given to me that I found the most useful is knowing your audience, right? Because if you don't know the audience, you, you, you don't know if you're engaging with them, you don't know what they want to hear, you don't know how they will, what characters you could present to them that would they will relate to, this kind of thing. And I think that that's something that a lot of, you know, people maybe in the lab, they're trying, they want to do science communication, but it's something that, that isn't impressed upon. So I, I appreciate that, that that's the angle you are coming from to inform your work. Um, so to, to discuss these papers, I think... You know, the the other sort of broad question I have was, was there sort of specific assumptions? You know, we hear about the Dunning-Kruger effect and, and things like this. Was there specific assumptions that you wanted to address? And we could start that generally. But if you if it makes more sense to you guys as the authors of the paper to jump right into some of the papers, uh, we can do that. Uh, so I'll kind of leave that up to you if you want to address that question sort of broadly or jump right into some of the specifics of, of the papers. So I, I'm i going to give a little bit of context onto why we did this. And so this was more of a legacy project that we had thought about after the centenary of the Genetic Society in 2019. So initially, we had nothing to do with COVID-19 because obviously we, we, we cannot predict a pandemic. And so we were more interested in, to, in trying to figure out what was the public attitude, trust, and understanding of genetics more broadly. And then we saw this opportunity with COVID that it was a very an interesting natural experiment that was occurring in front of us. And we, 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 get, we tried to get that opportunity and try to get that data, which I think it worked perfectly. I personally don't think I had 
many assumptions. I think that it was, there were a lot of things that surprised me uh, in terms of the data that we we got. I was very surprised that only, uh, so I think a third of our sample did not, uh, they reported that they've not heard about the term PCR. And for me, I thought it was a huge, huge amount of people when PCR was just all over the news where everyone had to do a PCR to go anywhere. So some of those assumptions for me was that I thought we had connected um, with more people. But then it makes sense with the rest of the results where it says that there's, there's, there's a subset of the public that we are not reaching. So it might be that we are actually found why these people report that they haven't heard about PCR. Um, I did think that trust would have increased, but I still was quite surprised about the numbers of how much it has increased. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, I guess the, the, the prevailing model has been the deficit model for science communication. The knowledge deficit and, and, model, yeah. Maybe you could just unpack that like, quickly before uh, for well, the audience. Yeah, so, so, so briefly, this was the model that was the, in the 80s and 90s that to basically address... So, for instance, in the 80s, we were concerned about um, the public's reaction to genetically modified foods. And there were a number of, sort of high profile scares associated with that. And I think the, the, the prevailing model was that, well, we just need to address that by telling people the truth. We just need to reach out and give them the knowledge. And that that deficit model is almost was subsequently shown, shown to be not true i mean it's not simply a case of just if you tell the people then they'll they'll get acceptance of, of controversial science it, it doesn't work um and so we didn't go in with any a priori assumptions though we went in being skeptical of the deficit model mm -hmm. yeah another thing that comes up uh, a bit of a pet peeve of mine when i do uh, i do workshops now for grad students and stuff on science communication and that's probably the biggest focus of it is that the knowledge deficit model is what everybody kind of defaults to but it's probably not the best in that if you just hand someone information then they're just going to agree with you right because people don't make decisions based on fact alone i think we all kind of see this now in our lives like pandemic brought out a lot of things where you can see people are making decisions based on world beliefs, you know, all sorts of things. So, yeah, I think that's, again, something else that I like to stress in these things is that, you know, we need to sort of think beyond the knowledge deficit model and beyond just supplying facts. But it's, I understand that as scientists, that's sort of what you're trained to do, right, in your dissertations and in your papers. It's just let me supply the facts and how I got them so that someone else can can replicate that. But that's a totally different audience than when you're communicating with, you know, the broader public, right? Yeah, I mean, I think as uh, lots of scientists, um, and I would count myself among that, among that group, go out and do engagement work, communication work, without a theoretical understanding necessarily of why they're doing what they're doing. I mean, they're effectively implicitly following the deficit model. Mm -hmm. now, the, the deficit model is not wholly wrong. It's just mm -hmm. the, the, the effect of giving people knowledge is, is, is very small. Okay. So if you correlate, if you do, if you look at the correlation between engagement activity and, and the, and if you like in, in causing the audience to trust you, there is a small effect there, but it but it is pretty small. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I think that we forget so, also, sorry, I, this is completely anecdotal. In 2019 at the Greenman Festival, we had a stand at Einstein Garden where we had we were asking people whether they would agree or disagree with gene, um, gene editing if it was for food modification, for um, health purposes or for cosmetic purposes. And people understood the what gene editing meant and they were most of them were against it for gene modifying uh, for foods, um, absolutely pro, um, and, and they agreed if it was to be used for um, a health issue, and then on the fence, mainly on the negative side for cosmetic-related uh, issues. So people don't, they, they understand, and they have no problem with the technique. It's also about the application of that technique. So giving information doesn't necessarily change people's attitudes. We need to understand that there's another layer to um, to their attitudes, which is just basically their own views, their um, like all sorts of, as we say in the paper, it can be age, it can be uh, religion, all of these other external factors can actually influence your attitudes to certain things. And it's not necessarily that they are against the genetic technique that they are applying is what is being applied to. So. I think that the mm -hmm. knowledge mm -hmm. deficit might not address those things. You can tell them as much as you want. Uh, GMOs are one of the greatest examples. You can tell them as much as you want. And people have so such strong convictions about it that you might not be able to change their mind regarding GMOs. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things that go into it beyond even just, you know, the, the safety of the food for GMOs, right? The safety of the food. Some people just feel uncomfortable with it. It doesn't feel natural, you know, and then there's that barrier. And that's sort of a philosophical or maybe a spiritual belief that they have that is just, I, you know, and maybe you never will be able to convince everybody. I don't think we ever no. will be able to convince everybody of everything. And that's not really the point. But yeah, that's a, it's another important to make is that there's layers to it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, so I wanted to shift then to like the specifics. And I thought it made sense to start with the paper that was published in January of this year, which is the extreme attitudes towards science, uh, and then sort of move the discussion through that one and then into the next one, if that sounds like a decent roadmap for everybody. Uh, and maybe we can start with you, Christina, as uh, you were the, the lead author on this paper. Um, so I'll just start, you can, again, if you wanted to give like sort of the motivation or the context for, for what you were asking, and then specifically, what were the questions, what was the sort of hypothesis, what were you attempting to, uh, what data were you attempting to get in this paper, and then we can move to what you found. Yes, yeah, so um, this specific paper um, came out, as I mentioned before, it was sort of a legacy work. And, and we were um, aiming to just be able to collect evidence that would um, actually be useful for any science communicators, but also for the genetic society and the wider scientific community and any science communicator out there so that we could all be much more informed about the public needs. Um, we used, I don't know if you want to get into the technical um, aspect of sure, it. Sure, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> no, so we used, we used, we had to use a company that is called Cantor Public so that our sample is randomized and it's um, actually representative of um, UK public. 
what we were looking for. So this work um, is influenced by work from the Wellcome Trust monitors. So the Wellcome Trust used to do um, what they called monitors. So every couple of years, they used to do uh, a big survey to the UK public where they used to have um, a little quiz and then they, they used to ask loads of different questions about different sciences. So it was not genetics um, specific or anything, but we thought and that it was a good way of starting. So the quiz, the part where we test knowledge is based on uh, the Wellcome Trust monitors and we thought that that would be good because we would have data points where we could actually check whether or not knowledge has been increasing or decreasing through the UK population. And then what we were mainly trying to ask was, is the, is the pandemic and all of the information that we were all flooded with throughout the pandemic, all of these different genetic uh, terms that people were hearing on a daily basis uh, resonating with people, did they make the, um, the click of this is actually genetics? Uh, all of these conversations about um, new strains, do, do they understand that this is actually just, we're talking about genetics, that PCR is a genetic technique. And if so, did that mean, does that mean that people trust geneticists more? Um, and so that was basically what we wanted to figure out was that if this overload of science information had actually changed people's perceptions, attitudes, and trust to geneticists and scientists. We also did a few sort of experiments within the paper. So one of them, um, so we used um, Pfizer and Glaxosys, uh, Glaxos, oh, Glaxo. That yeah, one, yeah. <laughs> GlaxoSmithKline. Um, uh, so half of the sample were fed Pfizer and half of them JSK. Uh, because Pfizer at the time had a vaccine out, JSK didn't have any vaccine to see whether the trust would change depending on um, which company they were being fed. And um, we also had a negative control. So we asked people whether they trust geneticists, whether they trust scientists, and whether they trust geologists. And the, the, the whole negative control worked very well. Um, I think we weren't, as we said at the beginning, I don't think we were expecting any, we, we did not know exactly what to expect. I, I think we were very thoughtful and mindful when we created the questionnaire that we would be able to extract as much data and that we could correlate data. So all of the questions were done in a way that they would make sense and that if we had a certain answer to one question, we would be able to relate it to the next question. Yeah. Um, and. Like I said, I like how the two papers sort of built on each other, but I guess it was, again, opportunity to sort of, you know, get as much out of a data set as, as you can and, and then expand on it. So this, the first one specifically dealing with this, you know, extreme attitudes towards science, uh, people with extreme attitudes towards science have self-confidence in their understanding of science, even if this is not justified. So in this one, if I'm remembering correctly and interpreting correctly, this is where you have that that quiz of sort of getting a, just a sense of sort of a score for people as to how much accurate science knowledge they, they have, and then looking at their attitude. So I'd like to uh, ask about that then. What was the correlation you found uh, in terms of you might think that, you know, my guess or maybe the audience guess is people that score really well on the test 
are going to feel very confident about their answers. But maybe there was some surprises in the data there. So maybe Jonathan, if you want to, just to yeah. just to mix it up here. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're right. So what, one other thing by having those those series of, of objective questions, questions like, for instance, do GM tomatoes have genes before they've been genetically modified? That, that sort of thing. Um, um, but there weren't all, I mean, there were things about radioactivity, um, you know, not, not all biological. It was just general general questions about scientific knowledge. And, and, and so we could actually, for the same people that we surveyed about their confidence in, in their scientific knowledge, we could actually say, well, do they have that scientific knowledge? Is their <laughs> confidence founded? And and broadly, what we found was that that there was a, if you like, a, a, the, the shape of our distribution was that we found a group of people who were very confident in their scientific knowledge, but that that confidence was not backed up by the data. So, in other <laughs> words, they were they were overconfident about how much they knew the science. Mm-hmm. And the point about that was that, that that group corresponded largely to the people with extreme attitudes. So, in other words, they were distrustful, shall we say, of, of, of GM. Okay, so extreme attitudes um, seem, seem to these people that had extreme opposition on oppositional attitudes towards science tended to be overconfident in their scientific knowledge. Um, and that's not an effect that we saw for people to, to, to fall into the middle of the distribution. Uh, the, the people who effectively were saying, well, the, the, their, their opinions of what they knew about science tended to, to match how we, how we gauge them in terms of those questions. Mm-hmm. So then this kind of, again, if I'm remembering correctly, this Dunning-Kruger effect, I, that's the one where if you people who have less knowledge tend to be more confident in what they, is that the, the, the general principle of it? Is that what was sort of at play here? Is that kind of what you so, attribute it to or is there some more going on? Yeah, so at the other end of the distribution were people who uh, were self-assessed as being confident about their scientific knowledge. And those people were largely backed up by our, our questions. That, that, I mean, obviously, this is complex data, right? This is, this is survey results from more than 2,000 individuals. It will be very noisy because it's being influenced by lots and lots of different confounders. And even 2,000 people, or it's a lot of people, it's still probably quite small. And, and, and it will be... Uh, susceptible to various stochastic or random effects um and so so but broadly speaking the people that are very confident uh, and also that in our survey we could say yes that confidence is founded they they had non-oppositional views or more accepting views of controversial aspects of science Mm, mm -hmm. any uh any thoughts as to you know this you know we seem to have these two two ends of the spectrum we'll say where high conf both with high confidence one you know doing well on the science questions the other not one having extreme attitudes one being more except or we could say uh, antagonistic attitudes or distrustful attitudes towards science the other yeah. being yeah. Uh, being more accepting of it it it, it 
on the one hand, it makes, you know, as someone who also rates my scientific knowledge <laughs> as, a, as confident, and I hope I would score well on the test, I don't know, also accepting of science, that seems to logically track this idea that, you know, you, you understand what you know, you're confident in what you know, and then maybe the mystique or the sort of fear behind uh, what could be a, you know, maybe a scary new technology or a, mm -hmm. or a controversial technology is, is gone. Uh, but then you have the other side where you can't really say it's lack of knowledge because they think they know the knowledge. So is it what you, what do you what do you hypothesize there? And I know again, well, it's like maybe I, I don't want to you don't want to maybe walk out on a limb and say this is what's going on in this group. Understand? But what are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess that that, that is something that, that we thought about. Or what we as a scientific community, the assumption had been, again, for these controversial areas like GM crops and so forth. The perception was, well, this is just based, the, the, the oppositional views are based on fear, uh, fear of the unknown. And if we can make that more known, then the fear will dissipate. And of course, that that's not, our results suggest that actually many of the oppositional or the, or the individuals that show strong oppositional views, it, it they believe they understand the science. So it's not the fear of the unknown, yeah. No, it, well, it's a fear of their alternative known, as it were. Interesting. It, it, it means as well, I think, that you're not going to get at these people simply by talking to them more, okay? Telling them more science. The knowledge because, deficit sort of question, yeah. Yeah, because these individuals, they already think they know, and in many cases probably think they know more than you. <laughs> <laughs> so Christina did to to bring you back in here what do you what does this maybe inform about strategy then for your work I think for the longest time a lot of the learned societies have tried to reach this um, small community that we call like hard to reach and um, they're not engaged with science and um, and I think that at some point we might need to revise our strategy and think these people, we are using all of our efforts and uh, trying to connect with them, but will we actually be able to change their minds? And I think what we show is that probably not. Um, and on the other hand, we have, um, I think it's like half of our sample saying, we want to hear more science. So it's just trying to say, where, where do you want your efforts to go into, to a, a, an audience that is engaged and wants to hear more from you or this minority that you know that might actually not be open to um, change their mind because they are so certain that their knowledge is correct and their attitudes are unchanged because it's going to be very difficult to actually be able to get your point across. So I think for us is maybe still try. I'm not saying that we need to abandon this minority and say, you know what, no, because this minority, and I'm, I'm saying this without much evidence on this, but these minorities tend to be quite loud and there's always some mm -hmm. misinformation that can come from here and we need to address that. Uh, but I think we need to also think that from um, a more broad perspective, maybe we need to give more time to 
um, our audience that is captive, that wants more from us, that needs to hear more from scientists, that wants to be able to um, chat in whatever form it is. We don't know. We didn't. We didn't ask that question. I think that that will be a nice follow up of if you want to hear more from us, how, what, what format do you want to hear from us? Um, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it might be that we just need to acknowledge that there's a group of people that it's going to be extremely difficult to connect with and to change their minds. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I, yeah, I've, I've thought about some of these kind of things as well, because you don't want to say, oh, we're giving up on these people. Uh, but yeah, there's, if you realize that there's a giant, there's a larger segment of people who actually want to engage, you know, it's, it's like a economics question of value of your time and your resources and your money. Right. And maybe I think you write in the paper, this, you, you term it like this quiet majority of people that are sort of looking for more information, or maybe they're on the fence, that kind of thing. And they could be swayed or you could, I kind of view it as you could, prevent them from succumbing to misinformation or that kind of thing, right? So that would be a very useful, you know, for society, I think. <laughs> Again, I don't, this is my personal opinion, to sort of, you know, cover that group and inoculate them maybe against the misinformation and give them the, uh, the relationship and the trust that would then, you know, buffer against some of these really loud voices that, don't want to hear, don't want to engage, you know, sort of honestly in many cases. Uh, but then, you know, there's that flip side that I think some of the things that I've been seeing with, um, you know, whether it's politics or anything of this nature where there's a sort of an outlier group that sort of is antithetical to what everyone else is about, they tend to be very loud. But I think that it, like just wall, trying to wall that off doesn't work, and that can be quite quite dangerous as well. So striking that balance seems like a very challenging <laughs> thing to do. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I mean, one of the issues that I mean we we mentioned it in the in the discussion section of the paper is that this 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 I mean this is, these are a small minority of individuals. These overconfident. Um, individuals um, but because of their confidence they're often quite vocal um, and the media particularly when they're striving for balance as they feel mm -hmm. they should do I guess when you're do when you're talking about politics you should I suppose try for balance but that that model can go awry if actually what you're talking about is scientific consensus um, mm -hmm. And so you 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 end up well. We all know that you end up with situations where you'll have a guest on on a television show who's very confident about their particular view, but they're not competent scientifically. Mm -hmm. And and it's a tricky area, of course, isn't it? Because you, you you don't want you don't want the public to view scientists as gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. you know, we don't want to be saying, oh well, unless you've got a PhD, you can't have an opinion. Yeah, or condescending, um, or yeah, any of these kind of right, things. Yeah, right. Um, so it's a tricky thing, but but it is an important issue that if you are going to get somebody on who has an oppositional view to say the scientific consensus, well, how competent are they to adopt that view? And it you know it suggests that they, you know, they're coming from that minority that we've identified here. Mm hmm. So then thinking about 
ways to do that? Because I often think, you know, and maybe this is just sort of a, uh, an unrealistic or, you know, prob maybe probably in reality an unhelpful <laughs> scenario or fantasy in my head is that when you have that, like if there was somebody with the scientific competence that maybe had a bit of edge, maybe had a bit of fire and went toe to toe on these television programs or something like that, might that provide some kind of pushback or at least frame that viewership to an to an audience member that's looking at well this person's really confident they don't have any facts they're really confident and they seem to be sort of you know the 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 you know people are gravitate towards that kind of charisma or that kind of do you need that on the other side or you know maybe a better way is to what is the how do you get someone to trust you know in the absence of that sort of bolstery kind of bravado or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. That's, I think that's very tricky because, and again, this, this is just a generalization. If someone is very competent and a very good scientist, they have much more to lose trying to go and do that. Because nowadays with, yeah. um, with media and misinformation, they can just be uh, completely torn apart, even though they, they might be, fully correct and that can have massive repercussions in terms of their um, their daily lives and um, their labs and whatnot so that's that's what we found with the GMOs back in the 90s was that a lot of the scientists did not want to go uh, on record because they were afraid of um, the repercussions of airing their opinions and that's how the Science Media Center was born and all of that so I think that that's, that's the, the danger is that all of these people are very, very competent, that might actually have charisma. It's, it can be exhausting. And we've seen that throughout COVID, especially if you were on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, no doubt. And there were amazing scientists doing such amazing job, but it must have been completely exhausting because they were being attacked by people that do not understand science sometimes or that they just wanted a little bit of conflict. And these people have to go and just justify every single thing that they say and trying to back it up with data. And you might do all of the right things, say all of the right things, but people might just not believe you. And again, this is completely anecdotal, but I remember a few years ago, I had uh, we had a stand at um, the Royal Botanical Gardens and this lady, it was a stand about genetics, and this lady just came and she was extremely religious. And she was just telling us that we were all wrong. And the next day came and brought us a little pamphlet that had absolutely beautiful science. Like it was completely right. All of the graphs were beautiful. Um, everything was accurate in terms of science. And then in the end said, obviously, if, if, if this is all correct, it needs to be done by a higher entity needs to be better. And she was so persuasive. Like, obviously, she didn't persuade us. But the, the fact that she came the next day and she did not let that go um, in a room yeah. full of science. High motivation, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's the sort of thing that even though she had, because we had probably five or six stands and full of science, she still came the next day with her pamphlet um, and trying to convert us because she thought that she was so correct and we were so wrong. And um, so I think it's also the motivation. Somehow these people seem highly motivated to be able to just um, have their voices heard. And I think that that's probably one of the issues is that competent people and people that want to 
be heard might just be completely drowned by this exhausting public that just comes and attacks them from all sides. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, you see that all the time. And I mean, there was a recent in the US, um, you know, kick up in social media and whatnot, because of the very popular comedian podcast Joe Rogan had on the uh, RFK, the presidential candidate that's, you know, questions vaccines and all of these things. And the a well-known science communicator in the U.S. on Twitter, vaccine scientist, was, you know, sort of criticizing that, saying why you shouldn't give these people a platform kind of thing, and then got inundated with, well, then come and debate them. Well, why? Do, what are you trying to hide? Blah, blah, all this. And it's like, yeah, well, what is you have to think about as a as a as the as a scientist or science communicator, you know what am I walking into? Because mm. a de, a quote air quotes here debate on a on a comedian's podcast is not going to be a structured, fair platform, right? There's no there's no checking of of things, and this is where then you don't like you mentioned, Jonathan, you don't want to look like a gatekeeper, but sources matter right like we have to have some sort of objective agreement that well this is a good source this isn't a good source so there's a there's a ton of a ton of factors involved here yeah and the terms of the debate are not from the two sides in those sorts of circumstances are not the same i i remember in the in the 90s um there was a general feeling that this was with the you know creationism and intelligent design community um there was a general feeling that scientists should not take on uh, invitations to debate because the, the the two sides were not interested in the same mm -hmm. things. The intelligent design community wanted to be debating scientists so that they can say, look, we're equivalent. Yeah. We have opposing views, but we're the same. Whereas the scientist is just wants to get things correct. Yeah. And, and if you like... It doesn't matter to the intelligent design creationist community. We're getting airtime with a scientist. That's all that matters right. to us. Yeah, and, and our audience will hear what they want to hear. Uh, I, I I can't remember what the source is, but I think it's correct that that every time um, a new paper came out about debunking the MMR uh, vaccine hypothesis in measles, vaccination rates went down, even though the paper was saying. No, no, there is no connection mm. because a certain group of people would just say, oh, it's in there's controversy about the air. Right. And that that would then create this sort of uh, a, a scare. Yeah. Like. So almost almost addressing the question can create problems yeah. <laughs> if, if it's if it's, you know, if it's not in the media, you a few years go by, but so a group of scientists are working away diligently showing there is no connection between incidence of measles and MMR vaccination rates. They publish a paper on it and they ought, and many people will just say, oh, MMR and measles. Yeah. Or they haven't heard about it in years and then it, it comes up again. They're like, oh, well, the yeah. fact that they're looking at it means there must be something there, you, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, and so maybe then, like you said, this, this, we tend to get wrapped up in this right because and rightly so because there is we all have this i think i think we all agree that you know this with social media and in the forms of communication now this spread of misinformation and you can see how destabilizing that can be in an emergency situation or even just to get collective action on things like climate change or, or anything really so it's important to want to address this but 
the the quiet majority, the the folks that 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 want to want to know, or are, like I said, are on the fence or something like that. It's like focusing there actually might be more of a buffer against some of these things. Like if you if these loud vocal voices can't recruit more more. I don't know. I don't want to say followers. It makes it sound like a cult or something, but maybe in some cases it is. But uh, I think you understand what what I'm what I'm saying. Yeah. So um, the other thought I had on this is then if it's it seems to me that a lot of the vocal this vocal minority that we're kind of you know characterizing here, you know, painting a picture of here with the allowed on social media, aggressive, think they know, you know, all of this. Um, they tend to be, again, no data on my point, uh, but it feels like there's there's people sort of at the top that sort of promulgate this stuff, and they have a vested interest, whether it's a true belief in, say, religion or, a, or an ideology or something, or it's to make money. You know, they're, they're, a lot of people are making money on this. So then you have the audience for that, and I wonder if separating those two groups makes makes sense. And this maybe goes to the second paper about trust, because I think the audience for these, I'll call them grifters of various uh, sorts, trust becomes a something that comes up as, you know, it's not that they, it's, they think they know the science that may or may not be founded, but they don't trust the institutions or the scientists themselves. And so maybe attacking it, the problem from that angle. And, and I mean, we could probably talk for three, three hours about increasing trust, but let's maybe bring it to the second paper and this idea of trust, because that was something that you specifically looked at, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the, the trust in and polarization of trust in sciences throughout, throughout the pandemic. Yeah. So, um, Basically, what we found is that people that had more negative attitudes before the pandemic just basically carried on having even more negative attitudes. And then the ones that had positive attitudes carried on having more positive attitudes after the pandemic. So this is the polarization that we talked about, which is um, it sort of made it a little bit more extreme. They kept their um they kept their attitudes towards it, but it just became a little bit more extreme. Um, I think the point that you were making is really interesting because that's what we found. We found that, uh, for instance, people trust research scientists if they are connected to a uh, university more than if they are connected to the government or even to a charity. Uh, so it means that people place value on these different institutions. So it's quite interesting. And the pandemic also had um, a really interesting effect, effect on that because we had scientists from government and we had scientists uh, from organizations just trying to give out data and give out information for, for the public. And um, it's interesting to know that there's actually a difference. So maybe we can play that to our own advantage. Uh, so there's two ways that we could do that. For instance, from a learned society point of view, what do we want? Do we want to actually raise our trust and be able to say, look, we are a learned society. We are, our, all of our members are academics from well-established universities. So if you come to us, we are trustworthy. 
or to just say to all of our members, when you're talking about anything science-related, just give your affiliation to the university instead of, um, of the Learned Society or the government or whatnot. But I think that it's really interesting to just see that the public has a different um, view on trust depending on where those people or what the affiliation is that people tell you. Um, and I don't know how or why this is. Um, I don't think we explore that that much. Um, but it's just interesting to see. And it's interesting to see how much would be, would be, would we be able to actually uh, connect with our audience if we actually increase our trust in other professionals like science communicators? And I don't know whether or not people realize that science communicators usually have a background in science. They've been an academics as well. So um, I don't. I don't think there's much I would add to that. Actually, I mean that just that captures it pretty well. I mean, I guess we did see an effect. Um, on a specific pharmaceutical company, which I thought was surprising, perhaps. Um, but I mean, we, obviously, you can't disentangle whether it's just they heard about that pharmaceutical company more. But it, it, implicitly, we could suggest that it that they associate the pharma company that made the the vaccine that that they were vaccinated with. So, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they the people associate the the. Just unpack that maybe what what the association with the with the company was for the audience. So we asked asked them whether they trust the the company more. We asked them about two companies, um, uh, GlaxoSmithKline and uh, Pfizer. Now, obviously, GSK GlaxoSmithKline didn't have a vaccine, um, whereas Pfizer did. And so we we see an effect. Um, it's marginal, but we do see an effect in the sense that individuals trust Pfizer uh, a little more um, than they trust uh, compared to how they trusted them prior to the, uh, the pandemic. One caveat to all these trust things, of course, is that um, we rely on people's self-assessment. Mm -hmm. We did not, because of the way the survey was designed, we could not know objectively what their self what their reported trust would be back then so there's a little bit of a caveat associated with all of these things when we're talking about trust we're relying on the people when we surveyed them to think back mm -hmm. and ask whether their trust has changed yeah actually that's i'm glad you brought that up and it's something that i you know have just serendipitously i guess been thinking a lot about in terms of you know making podcast episodes about science communication and stuff specifically with the pandemic, how there's this sort of revision of history that seems to be happening in a lot of different, the minds of different people, you know, and maybe this is that sort of overconfident group or something, you know, that's going on. But there's a lot of people who, and again, totally anecdotally on social media and just in the science communication stuff that I do and people I talk to, you get this, this sense that people want to remember it differently, either that, well, I was always distrustful of this. You know, I didn't go along with the group or, you know, in the opposite scenario as well. And it's an interesting phenomenon and I'm not sure exactly, it's kind of a bit unrelated. So it's a bit of a tangent here, but 
the idea of having to go back and remember what you felt and what you thought at that time during such a chaotic event, right? And then how the the media or the the things that you've then experienced and consumed between the event and when you're being asked is going to actually shape your, mm -hmm. you know, and we all know human yeah. memory is such a <laughs> malleable, fallible yeah. thing. So it's another thing to try and deal with. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible that actually the effect size would be even larger if we were able to do that. You know, perhaps people's perceptions, if they're viewing Pfizer favorably because they've just been vaccinated and now can go about, about their lives normally, perhaps they would they have a, an overly favorable view of that company compared to what they actually have. Yeah. And so we might we might that might be obscuring a stronger effect. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing that's also worth pointing out, we as a control, we asked them whether they were more trusting of geneticists before or uh, compared to after or uh, compared to geologists, which should obviously have no connection <laughs> that we could think of to COVID-19. Well, you just haven't spent enough time um, in the corners of the Internet to find the geology COVID right, conspiracy. Right, exactly. There probably yeah. is. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but we did find a, a moderate effect that that uh, for geneticists uh, that that there was more trust in geneticists um, compared to geologists. Yeah, interesting. Um, and that feels like something. And again, like you you were saying, Christina, the, the finding that uh, university affiliated academics have a bit more um, trust from the public um, is interesting, and maybe something that could be leveraged, right? Like if there was a, a university affiliated figure that sort of a geneticist that was, you know, prominent during the pandemic, maybe now is the opportunity, you know, strike while the iron's hot kind of thing to sort of get that person. Or if you were that person, you know, barring all the negative experiences that come with putting yourself out there, you know, to get out there and and maybe leverage that. It's the the fact that the university affiliation shone through in terms of trust stood out to me because I had done two, three years ago. Well, yeah, I can't remember now, but bef right before the pandemic hit, I was working on a piece about using animals in research. And it was really focusing on the the emotional well-being of the researchers themselves um, uh, that when they when they use that and trying to, I guess, show that these are humans too, you know, that they have conflicting feelings and thoughts and stuff. The idea to, you know, bring that out and maybe it's more relatable. But um, a lot of surveys about trust in animal research and stuff from the UK showed this same thing, that university affiliations, uh, people were really more trusting of that than governments of you know health agency all of these things right so i wonder too if that's maybe uh maybe it's a a, a uk specific trait i don't know i from as an outsider from north america from canada i always felt like the british university system had a sort of prestige to it and maybe there was maybe that's something that you know is 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 sort of culturally there maybe it's something where you know people that have gone to university, like maybe you had a sibling that went to university or an uncle. So there's kind of it's less of an opaque uh, entity as some government lab doing something. Uh, and I wonder if it it would be it, you know we'd have to you'd have to run the study in in this in the U.S. or in Canada or something. But to see if that effect 
you know, was was broad. I wonder if it would be the same in, mm. in a place like the U.S. Again, just sort of thinking of stereotypes where maybe there'd be more of a rejection of sort of academic elites. I don't know. I don't know if it's also because people associate an academic from university to be an independent identity. They are not trying to gain anything from it. They're not trying to sell you anything. Um, so, and again, I have no answer for it. So it, it might be that it's just being, they're being more trusted just because this idea that we have that um, academics from university are just um, interested in their own research. They're not trying to just modify your your views for any personal gain or anything. They're just giving you the true facts. Um, as I think it became uh, like sort of a massive thing during the pandemic about facts. So they're giving you the facts. They're just giving you all the things that they know and they're the experts instead of just being someone that is connected to the government. And they're giving you facts that are going to um, imply that some rules are going to to be applied to you or someone from biotech that then they were definitely going to try to sell you something. I don't know. I It would be really interesting to go and look into it. Uh, we didn't, I don't, I don't think we can answer any of those questions with, with our studies at the moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Just some interesting things I think that popped up to me and, and uh, I think with all of this stuff uh, when it comes to communication, science communication, it feels like every time I dig into it and, you know, we get these tidbits of data, there's a thousand more questions that come out, which is classic science, right? Like this is what we deal with. Um, but it does, I wonder if you feel the same way. And just from a personal uh, standpoint, you're both involved in, in science communication quite, quite frequently, quite heavily. Christina, this is your, this is your, your job. What is your personal sort of feeling on a day-to-day -day basis? Is there moments where it feels like, what do we do? Like, are we ever going to, are the results there? Because it can be very difficult aside from studies like this and even studies like this where there's caveats. And do you get that, that motivation maybe? Or where do you find that motivation to be like, I'm making a difference? I think we are making a difference mm -hmm. because we, we talk to people and... Um... It's really fascinating because the, the the questions that we get asked are amazing. They're really, really interesting questions that probably people would not be able to ask in another context in their life. So we are able to put scientists and um, members of the public in, in touch with each other. Um, there are so many questions that I would like answered and there's so many studies that I would like to do. And in order to be able to inform my own practice. But at the moment, I think we're doing the best that we can with the tools that we have. And I think that for me, it's quite important to also give researchers and academics the, the knowledge, well, it's not even knowledge, just, just the opportunity to be able to contact. Because I, I think we focus usually with, with science communication, we tend to focus a lot on what the public gets out of it and, and we're informing the public and whatnot. But I think it's also really, really important to think about what researchers get out of it. And I think that it's really important for them to be able to connect with an audience that um, is going to question their work, that is going to question uh, why they're doing that, how they're doing that. And 
it, it's it's really interesting to me and for instance Jonathan and we can talk about it and um, he runs a, a whole workshop for academics on how to communicate your science and it's a beautiful amazing workshop uh, sorry to do the publicity here um it's free it's free no one is free. <laughs> um but i think that's that's something that i would like to prioritize as well it's just it's what we were talking earlier like we need to empower researchers to have a voice to be able to stand and say you know what i can talk about my research i'm able to go into a comedian podcast and fight my my ground and instead of just focusing on what does the public want what do we need to provide the public it's also what tools do we need to give the researchers so that they can go and um explain whatever needs to be explained or to give the public whatever they want to give because we know that they want more information not necessarily in well we don't know which format they would want but i think that for me and um, as a science communicator that would be quite an interesting step to do i don't know if jonathan wants to yeah i mean i think at, another perspective on this is not that you know uh, should we communicate are we doing it the, the right way i mean there are that we can we can talk about that at, at length as well um but i think genetics is unusual and increasingly so um if you think about uh, the, the genomics england initiative for instance um where they sequenced 100,000 individuals um and this was a partnership with the nhs the general public are the subject mm. they really absolutely must be engaged mm. with uh in depth if that if you're going to have these sorts of projects it's the 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 public are part of it right okay and this nebulous public or this non non-specialist audience they have to be involved in 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 as intricate ways as it can be it can't just be the scientists talking to them it has to be much more than mm-hmm. that you know, in an ideal world, they'll be guiding some of the questions. Yeah, well, and you think... You know, this sort of citizen science type of Right, approach. well, and you think of, too, just you, you're collecting this kind of information, right, and how this information is going to be stored and used. There's there's ethical questions yep. that, you know, the public absolutely, you know, and then it's it's... If you don't make that effort, then I think you'll be perceived as hiding something or we weren't consulted on this kind of thing, if there is something that comes up. So it's in everybody's interest to really make an effort to because the, the genomics one, the genetics one, I think, yeah, it's something that, you know, it's rapidly changing the way, you know, healthcare and, you know, lots of different things mm-hmm. that are going to affect people, you know, not just our food, not just our environment, mm-hmm. but us as a species in ways that maybe people aren't ready for and, and, or that we'll see if they're ready for it or not. But yeah, preempting some of those discussions is I think an important, an important point. Yeah. And there are diversity issues as yeah. well. The, you, we, the, the, the human genome databases are dominated uh, by uh, European samples. Uh, and so there, there are, there are issues about connecting to other communities around the world mm-hmm. so that we're sampling the the these different communities and, and they are playing a role because obviously some of this data ultimately will be used for healthcare. Yeah. And so we need that. That's sort of 
I think that's also important. So I was at a, an event back in July at the Wellcome Trust that was uh, curated by Subhadra Das. And on the panel, there was someone, um, they were talking about personal genetic sequencing tests um, to find out your ancestry. And, and this person was, was mixed race. And when she got her initial results, she was a bit um, surprised with one of the percentages from a country that she did not expect to have that. And she said that she had a little bit of an identity crisis about uh, where she was coming from, what her ancestry was like. And that after a certain amount of time, she went back to see her results and her results had changed. And that gave her another sort of identity crisis. And this is really interesting to me because Kiri King was in the panel and she then had to explain. And there were more people in the audience that were like, oh my God, that happened to me and I don't know why. And so people are doing these tests because they are um, fairly um, available now to the public. Um, mm -hmm. And they don't understand. They don't understand because, and this is part of what makes your identity. You think that, okay, I got this result that I'm whatever percentage this person or this nationality and whatever percentage this nationality, and then you go and change. How can you change it? You haven't changed anything. And people don't understand that these are just, these results are based on huge databases that are constantly changing with the number of people that are on those databases. So it was really interesting because I hadn't thought about it, about the, the implication of actually having your DNA sample result change um, dynamically just because that's how um, these databases are, are working. And if you don't tell people this is, this is the reason why, it's not because you change, you're suddenly not uh, more or less Portuguese in my case. Scandinavian, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but it becomes something that people, so it was really interesting because the amount of people in the audience that were like, oh yes, I didn't, I didn't know why, why my results were changing. And it becomes this um, issue of personal identity that you just don't know how to resolve because you don't understand necessarily. Uh, because no one is going to tell you whatever the company is, is not going to explain that, you know what, this might change because um, our database is accruing new members every day. So those those aspects of genetics are part of our daily life and people should be able to um, make informed decisions about them and just be able to understand um, the consequences of all of these new techniques that we have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And we can start wrapping it up now here too. I'll get some final thoughts from you, but I think you just touched on something there that was also evident during the pandemic that I think maybe we as science communicators, scientists, maybe thought that people understood more, but were caught flat footed on was that the data changes. This is, it's a dynamic process. It's not, science is not just plucking facts out of the air and then that's it, right? I think people maybe get that, mm -hmm. that sense from physics more where there's like, well, gravity exists, you know, like it's, you could see it, it, it doesn't change. It's, it's always there, you know, there's no, well, let's see what tomorrow brings and maybe gravity will be different, you know? Uh, whereas biology, genetics, some of these things, you know, a, a situation like a pandemic where you go in blind, you don't know, new information comes in up so that whole process of it's not fixed it will change this is what we know right now and approaching communication efforts in that way rather than just saying this is what you need to do 
you know, do this, don't do that. And then having to walk that back, you know? So, but again, like I said, we can wrap up here because I don't want to take all of your, your afternoon, uh, although I am enjoying uh, the conversation. Um, <laughs> but just maybe some final thoughts on, you know, this, some of the things from the paper. We've kind of covered a lot of in terms of like, where do we go next or, or what, what sort of efforts we should, we should do. But is there any sort of closing kind of statement in terms of something that stood out in the data, something actionable or that you're going to take with you into your communication efforts or yeah, where, where to go next? Is there, is there plans for follow-ups on, on any of this, of these studies? Um, I think that from what I've got was more and more questions now. Um, so we are planning follow-up studies. We are just starting to think about them. Uh, what will we, we don't know exactly um, what form it will be. We are looking at different options. I think for me, it was just the, the most surprising thing and that made me very, very happy was to know that half of the UK public wants to hear more from us. And I think that's a very, very positive thing to take out of this because the pandemic was a, a very difficult time for everyone. We were inundated with so much information and um, our daily lives were disrupted in such huge and unpredictable ways at the time. Um, and still people want to hear more about science. I think that was that was amazing. So I think I, I'm grasping onto that, that people want to hear from us. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, and I think I think for, I mean I agree exactly with with Christine, and that's an important take home. But I think the other thing for me was I, I'm, this is not my my background is not in this area, but obviously I'm really interested in how we should go about engaging with um, non specialist audiences. And this was a great example of we we can do studies just like we do in the laboratory. We can ask, we can pose hypotheses, and we can test them, and we can get answers that are sensible. And I, I think that was that that was absolutely remarkable uh, for me. That was it, it. It's made me think. Right, I want to do this again with a different set of questions and ask, you know, focusing on different areas. It, it I have to say that we went into this with an absolute naivety of how to make questionnaires. We thought it was going mm. to be easy peasy. Just, up a few questions and then when you actually get into this because none of us um was was a social scientist um and it's really interesting to to ju just the thought process that goes behind a questionnaire or how you need to relate the question just the fact that the way the question the order of the questions that come on the questionnaire the fact that it can actually change the the results and um, it's amazing so for me that was also an amazing takeaway home like I, I learned so much and like Jonathan says I think we're all sort of itching to do a little bit more uh, I think we forgot about how um, difficult it was just to be able to actually narrow it down to those questions and put it in the right order that we were all happy about so that's great. I, I love that the, the scientists in both of you came out there and the, the answer to the question was, wow, we have a great method for studying this. I can't wait to I can't wait to apply it to more questions. Uh, so beautiful. Straight to form. Uh, I love mm -hmm. it. Um, uh, yeah, for me, I think reading these papers and what you one of the things you mentioned, Christina, formats, I think that would be a really interesting, you know, what are the formats? You know, these this quiet majority 
where are you going to meet them? Where are you going to find them? Um, the science festivals is something that I think is really kind of unique to to the UK. I haven't seen them in any of the countries I've lived in much, uh, like I like you see them in the UK. Um, podcasts, obviously, I'm a bit biased in that. I think that's something. But that would be an interesting one to me. Uh, and I wonder if social media platforms, it feels like it's changing all the time. There's an age demographic that, you know, wh who are you trying to... What is the age of the quiet majority? Who are, is, are young people on TikTok versus, you know, Facebook versus all these things? So those would be interesting things if I could just offer what I would like to see coming out of this this working collaboration, because <laughs> that would help me too. Um, but thank you both so much for taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, when you have more data, I would love to speak with you again or just in general, if there's something else, some other topic that we can discuss, I would absolutely extend an invitation, uh, standing invitation to join me on this show anytime. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's great. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you again so much for listening. If you want to learn more about the research that Jonathan and Christina did, check the show notes. You can find links to the papers there and some of the other activities that they're involved in. As always, rate, review, subscribe. Please leave us a comment. All of that really helps out the visibility. Or hit us up on Twitter or X uh, and Instagram at 2 for You, And let me know what you thought of the conversation. As an audience member, as a person who is being communicated to about science through this show, I want to get that feedback from you. So please hit us up, Instagram, Twitter, at 2 for You, or comments wherever you're getting your podcasts. And you can go to the website, 2 and find other ways to get in touch with us there or chip in a few bucks. That's all I have. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.